This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Hello, and welcome to Conversations with the President, a podcast series about diversity in the legal profession. I'm Canadian Bar Association President Ray Adlington. I'm a cisgendered white man who became a successful lawyer without having to face discrimination based upon my gender identity, race, sexual orientation, or physical abilities. Over this past year, I've spoken with a cross-section of lawyers from equality-seeking groups, learning about the obstacles they've faced and how they've overcome them. I've enjoyed all of these conversations, but in this, my last podcast, I'd like to share some of my favourite moments from the past year with all of you. I began this journey with a meeting with diversity and inclusion expert Rithu Basin in a small coffee bar in downtown Toronto. She reminded me there of the homework she assigned me when we first met in 2013. At that time, I truly didn't understand cultural differences, spoiler alert, I still have more work to do, and had adopted the approach of treating everyone the same. Rithu agreed to be my first guest, and she made the point that my approach was a common Canadian default setting when she spoke about being colorblind. I think that in Canadian culture, we have been socialized to be what we call colorblind, which means we have been taught over generations that in order to be fair and equal, to be inclusive, to not notice people's cultural differences, or if we notice them, to not mention them. And this has served us well, or so we have thought, but the problem is that we're now in a place where the pendulum has swung so far to the right, where we feel very uncomfortable in moments where it would make sense to describe someone by their cultural identity, we, we don't do it. Because we think, oh no, if I mention that she's Indian or describe the person as being black or indigenous, well, that's going to make me racist, so I shouldn't do it. Or if I mention that the person is a woman or um, uses a wheelchair or whatever, cult- whatever the descriptor is tied back to cultural identity, we're shy to go there. And I think... What is really important to note, it's completely fine to describe someone by their cultural identity if it is if it makes sense to do that in the moment, if you're describing them to identify them, for example, versus if you are identifying someone by their cultural identity and there's negative messaging or meaning attached to it. From Rithu, I learned about the value of having conversations about differences. It's surprisingly easy to do because people are generally willing to speak about their own personal experiences. Not only have these positive experiences helped me forge deeper relationships with people I already knew, it's also helped me better understand the perspectives of new people I encounter. Professor Naomi Metallic was the first person of Aboriginal heritage to clerk for a Supreme Court Justice. She now holds the inaugural Chancellor's Chair in Aboriginal Law and Policy at Dalhousie University's Schulich School of Law. Naomi also raised the same theme of community during our conversation about the Dalhousie Indigenous Blacks and Mi'kmaq program. The IBNM initiative is an initiative that it dedicates uh, seats for uh, both Mi'kmaq and Black uh, students in each incoming year. So I believe it's six for uh, Mi'kmaq, and if there are not enough, if there's not enough Mi'kmaq interest in a particular, they may open it to other Aboriginal people as well as uh, um, same for African Nova Scotian. And if there are other, if there's space, uh, there would be other African Canadians who would get the space. And in addition to that, there are some 
um, support for tuition and books, as well as a number of supports provided for the students, right? And not and when they're admitting students, they look not just at LSAT grades and marks, but also their community experience and what they may have done uh, prior to coming to law school. Many people come as more mature students. Um, and it's an excellent program. There has been over 200 grads um, since uh, the law school uh, began this program, 200 grads from the initiative. And uh, it's been a couple years since I looked at our Bar Society stats, but in Nova Scotia at the time when I looked at it, I think in 2015, 216, there was over 50 Aboriginal um, people called to the bar here in Nova Scotia and 50 African Nova Scotian at least. And I'm sure it's more than that now. But if you contrast that with our neighbors uh, in New Brunswick, they also have a law school. They don't have such an initiative. I can count on one hand and less than one hand uh, the Aboriginal lawyers who are called to the bar in New Brunswick. I mean, it's, it's the support that it creates, but it also creates this amazing community. And that's something that's really important as a minority you don't maybe realize until you're there, but I can imagine if it had just been me alone at some law school or maybe me or two or three other people. But when you have, you know, in a law school, 36 other people, uh, you know, 18 of which are from your community, 18 are from, a, you know, another community, African Nova Scotian, but you have a lot of similarities in terms of the histories you faced. Um, that's a huge difference. You know, you have that support behind you. And we do form you know, this informal network after we graduated and we're alumni, we support each other. Uh, we often have lots of uh, things during the year, gatherings. Um, we, we At every big milestone, we celebrate the IBNM initiative. But that's really important stuff because we don't come from families that, or many of us don't come from families that had, you know, lots of lawyers and judges in them, right? So this is creating those, those networks that we all need in order to help move us forward as lawyers. These unique programs offered at the University of Victoria, the Schulich School of Law at Dalhousie University, and at other Canadian law schools are the key to attracting and building a diverse legal profession. Nonetheless, to maintain this diversity, I also believe that inclusion is the path. I have concluded that accepting and celebrating our differences should be the next phase in our evolution as a profession so that we properly reflect the society that we serve. The theme of community came through loud and clear during several of my conversations. Charlene Theodore would make an impression on anyone so it's not surprising that one of my favorite moments came from my podcast with her. In September of 2020, Charlene will become the first racialized president of the Ontario Bar Association. When we spoke, Charlene was also the treasurer of the Canadian Association of Black Lawyers. She talked with me about how vital it is to have advocacy groups looking after their community. As lawyers, whether it's the Canadian Association of Black Lawyers, the OBA, you know, FACL, SABA, I think it really is important to... Um, given the high stress nature of our work and the, the issues that racialized lawyers and female lawyers have to deal with on top of those issues, it really is important to establish several different communities, right? So you'll have perhaps kind of the your community in common at work, people that are trusted allies for you at work that you can turn to for professional or maybe sometimes even personal advice. Um, but you also need to have people outside of your workplace that you can um, have as in terms of support or encouragement or guidance. Right. And, you know, or, exactly. Organizations like Cable really are a plat. That's really what the core of their platform is. Aside from advocacy, it really is family and community. So it is, I think it really is very important. David Curry is a Crown Attorney in Digby, Nova Scotia, about a half hour drive from the community of Lakeel, where he grew up. David is an alumnus of the Schulich School of Law's Indigenous Blacks and Mi'kmaq program. 
David spoke about the value of providing a face that reflected shared experiences for individuals in marginalized communities who are encountering our justice system. Connecting with the community to say we see you, um, we understand that there are differences, um, and we want to acknowledge that and genuinely reach out uh, to see what we can do to make this relationship better um, is always a great starting point. And um, so um, I'm proud of, of the judiciary in Nova Scotia who have uh, started to take those steps. Um, it, you know, it has to be sustained, though, institutionally, so that, uh, um, you know, some of the, the habits of the past don't get repeated. Um, and, and it's also, you know, if it's sustained, then, then that would send the message to the community that this is something that uh, we're not, you know, just doing on a one, one-off basis, but we're going to in, intertwine this with our system to make our system better. Um, and so uh, much work has to be done to prove that, in my, in my view. But certainly it's a, it's a great starting point and something um, that I'm proud of as a, as a Nova Scotian, and I, and I think all Nova Scotians should be proud of. I believe there is a role for the Canadian Bar Association to play in helping lawyers from equality-seeking groups build, expand, and advocate for these communities to enhance a sense of belonging. In addition to the role that the Canadian Bar Association can play, there is also a role for our individual legal organizations to play as well. Sasha DeClerc is the Head of Diversity and Inclusion in Canada for Norton Rose Fulbright. She let me know what her firm is doing to build diverse communities within the firm. One of my favorite initiatives that I like to talk about um, that we implemented is auditing our partner promotion process for bias on the basis of, of gender. So firms often run unconscious bias training and you know we all do it, but to make it stick, you really need to do to, to integrate the learning in your decision-making processes. So for example, two years ago we decided to implement a process in our partnership application review to audit for gender bias. It was the brainchild of our managing partner, and we decided that all partner applications would be presented to our promotions committee on a gender-blind basis. So during this, the first assessment level, the promotions committee will score applicants without knowing their gender. And then during the next stage, they have all the information, and we, at the end of the process, we compare the scores from what from that first assessment to to the final recommendations. And we also look at the differences in how men and women score female and, and male applicants. So seeing or not seeing any differences in the scores is not actually the, the biggest impact this process has resulted in. It's really knowing that decisions are being audited on the basis of gender that changes the conversation and the approach of decision makers and creates an opportunity for them to ask themselves challenging questions and also to challenge each other. So when this happens, I feel like we are really starting to, to move the dial. And this is what I aim for in all my work is to, to create that those checks and balances to ensure that these conversations are happening. And this is how we start to shift culture. My conversation with former Canadian Prime Minister Kim Campbell covered many subjects, including the role of women in the legal profession and in politics. I was particularly interested in her recounting of her treatment at the hands of the media in 1993 when she became Progressive Conservative Party leader and subsequently lost the next federal general election. When I was uh, running for the leadership and when I became Prime Minister, the hardest time I had with, was, was with journalists who were in the Ottawa Press Gallery because they covered national politics all the time. And I remember one journalist looking at me, sort of curling his lip and saying, you know, I've known every prime minister since Lester Pearson. And the implication was, you know, and you're no Lester Pearson. And I thought, well, no, I'm not. I don't look or sound like any of my predecessors. So if I went, 
out into the rest of the country. You know, if I was in Saskatoon, they might be much more interested in my views on, you know, did I support the Wheat Board? What did I think about rural depopulation? Because for them, national politics wasn't the thing they covered all the time. But people in the Ottawa Press Gallery sort of feel they, they own it. And you come along and you don't look or sound like anybody else who's done that. And they just can't get over that. But what's really the ethical challenge for journalists is understanding their own implicit biases, their own attitudes, the filter through which they are uh, interpreting information. And that's the hard thing for people to understand, that if you really believe that a woman you know, could, cannot be as smart as a man, you will look for reasons to justify that. Preston Parsons is well known to many in the CBA community. He's past national chair of the Young Lawyer Section and was a co-chair of the BC branch's Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Community, or SOGIC. Preston shared with me what it was like to come out as gay to his religious family in a small community in Alberta. At the time I was living in you know, relatively rural Alberta, all things considered, um, you know, I grew up on a family farm out there, a town of about 23,000 people over on the Alberta-Saskatchewan border, about 23,000 at the time at least, and I knew of you know maybe a couple people who were gay, but they certainly weren't that open about it. Um, if they were, they weren't treated well for it. It was really, you know, a conversation with my with my mother and then my family that really started that process and, and stuff. So that's that's really how I came out at nineteen and 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 yeah, it was not an easy an easy thing to do. It was uh, I, I recognized at the time that I could lose um, a significant number of my friends, many of whom were were quite religious um, in you know various different forms of Christianity or otherwise. And but at the time, I you know thought, well, I'm just not going to be able to move forward really with my life in the way that I'd like to without doing this. And and once I realized I had the support of my family and things, then I felt um, you know a little bit more invincible at that point and thought, well, okay, if I've got my family behind me, I can I can more boldly do this. And and much to my um, you know great blessing, um, I really didn't lose any friends over it either. Um, in fact, most people. When I told them that, hey, I've got I've got something I really really need to sit down and talk with you about, their response was typically, oh oh, we know we've been waiting for this conversation for years. Um, so, and and I kept repeating, well, no no, this is actually this is something very important. I want to have like a serious conversation with you, and they're like, no no, we know. I you know realized at least in the circles that I was in with my family and friends that I hadn't put enough faith in other people um, in their ability to to continue to welcome me and and you know accept me as who I was and. Um, and yeah, I, you know, really from that point forward have never really looked back. Another conversation that stands out for me is the one I had with Nicole Newsbaum, a staff lawyer with Legal Aid Ontario. She's transgendered, having transitioned in 2006. Nicole spoke with me about the importance of advocacy in the trans community. One thing we heard loud and clear was that trans competence or trans inclusivity has to be uh, very visible on the part of a legal service provider. So trans people will assume that a particular legal service provider is not uh, particularly uh, trans aware or, or trans competent unless they see something visible um, in their marketing materials or on their firm website uh, that indicates that they are. Just having a visible indication uh, really has to be met also with intake forms and, and other 
um, with intake forms that have a variety of uh, gender options um, and an indicator of preferred name, pronouns, those sorts of things, uh, accessible and safe washroom spaces. And then in terms of the legal services, uh, being aware of what trans rights, um, so being aware of the law as it pertains to gender identity and expression issues, uh, sort of across the board. And you know, there are cases in criminal and sentencing law, there are cases in human rights and employment law, there are family law cases, there are disability cases. Uh, so really knowing the trans cases in your particular practice area is also really important. Nicole also taught me about the importance of respect for personal choices when she spoke about pronoun usage. You know, I think some people uh, think pronoun use is, is a fairly superficial sort of thing. When people are misgendered, when somebody misgenders you as a trans person, what they're really saying is, I don't, I don't see you at all. I don't respect you at all. And I don't appreciate the struggle that you may have gone through to get to a point where you could be open um, and honest about who you are. That act of misgendering really uh, erases the, the whole person. Experientially, that's that's a that's really profound, and and people told us that especially when it came to interactions with uh, people in in the legal field uh, and in the justice system, that that kind of invalidation or or validation uh, was was even more important. Toronto lawyer Lauren McDonald suffers from profound hearing loss in both ears. Lauren summarized all of the earlier conversations I had better than I ever could in painting the picture of the Canadian tapestry with her words. What you're doing today, Ray, has been great because you have quite freely admitted, this is who I am. I can't possibly understand what the perspective is of a racialized lawyer or somebody with a disability or LGBTQ because that's not my lived experience. Right. But it doesn't have to be. You don't need to be in it to get it. You just need to be open to understanding it. And we're we're well aware of how the profession has been has benefited from widening that definition of inclusion. Um, we all benefit when there's more women um, in leadership positions and and LGBTQ and Indigenous peoples and all of that. But it takes the leadership from the top to say, you know what, I don't understand, but I want to, because this is how it benefits us. It's a win-win when our law firm, our practice, our business, what have you, is more representative representative of the people that we serve. You know, if, yes. if uh, you're an Indigenous woman who's coming into a law firm that is staffed mainly with no offense, Ray, but middle-aged white men, <laughs> what are you possibly, possibly going to understand about the concerns of that Indigenous person? And that's why there are specialty legal aid clinics um, that do support uh, people from marginalized groups. But we shouldn't have that kind of, for lack of a better word, kind of ghettoization and that 
we're we're not a melting pot in Canada like we are like they profess to be in the U.S. We're more of a mosaic where every every marginalized group, every Canadian has a part to play in the tapestry. That's Canada, and that benefits everyone. And so it's having conversations like this, um, being mindful of what needs to happen, being just simply aware, asking the question if you don't know, working from um, from fact sheets or whatever, because a lot of times when people are planning an event at a law firm, they don't think about things when they're planning it, like building in accessibility, considering do there does there need to be alter, alternative formats? Do you have a land acknowledgement before your, your conference opens? Have you done those things to make everyone who participates feel truly welcomed and not singled out? So it just takes the, the leaders like you to freely admit, I don't know it all, but I want to. There were many more interesting moments for me this year, and I encourage you to go back and listen to all of the conversations with the president, raising the bar on diversity. Please also subscribe to The Every Lawyer to receive notifications of our new episodes and leave us your review. Even though this is my last episode with you, the series will continue. On September the 1st, Vaveen Salmon will become the first ever black president of the Canadian Bar Association, which is about as fitting a conclusion to a podcast series on diversity and inclusion as I could have scripted. Coming this fall, Vaveen will be taking over Conversations with the President to have a series of intergenerational conversations. I encourage all of you to tune in, because Vaveen will be highlighting the challenges faced by lawyers early in their careers and how to help support them. Thank you for listening.